0: All right, everybody and welcome to another episode of the future ear radio podcast i am pumped to be joined today by nell rosenberg so nell thanks for joining us today how you doing
1: i'm doing great thank you for having me
0: absolutely so wanted to have you on today i think it's going to be a great discussion um you know kind of talking about what you all are doing uh at clark um so why don't we start with a broad introduction and just kind of hear about you know how you came into this role that you're in now? If you want to go kind of back to the start, what was the motivation of pursuing your SLP degree? Usually, it's audiologists that I have on, so I'm very honored to be joined by uh, an SLP today. I think this is the first of of the future year uh, podcast. So uh, thank you so much, and and let's hear it. How did how did this kind of uh, you know your role come to be?
1: Yeah. Well. I'm very honored to be the first speech language pathologist or SLP, hopefully many more to come. Um, And I am currently the national director of teleservices at Clark schools for hearing and speech. And I'll definitely tell you how I got there. Um, I'm a speech language pathologist and auditory verbal therapist. So there's a lot of letters after my name, but that means that I work with children who are deaf and hard of hearing, who are learning to listen and speak using technology, such as cochlear implants or hearing aids. Um, Yes. So that's Clark's mission. I'll get more into that. But my backstory is that I always knew I wanted to work with children. I was very fortunate to attend fully inclusive elementary schools when I was young and to grow up with close family friends who had a son uh, on the autism spectrum. And so I grew up drawn to the special educators and therapists that I saw in my schools and in my friend's home. And when I went to undergrad, I pursued my degree in human development and special education, assuming I would end up in a classroom. And in fact, I went on to get my master's of education in early childhood and special education. And while I was doing that degree, I realized I loved aspects of it but that the large group in the classroom was not a fit for me. And I found myself drawn again and again to what the therapists were doing and what the early interventionists were doing in smaller groups. I loved doing prescriptive reading interventions and it kind of clicked for me. This is almost where I belong, <laughs> but what I really should be is an SLP. And I applied to programs, so I was still finishing up my master's of education I went straight into my Master's of Science in Communication Sciences and Disorders to become a speech pathologist.
0: Wow. Okay, very cool. So where did you go to undergrad?
1: I went to undergrad at Boston College. The a wonderful experience. Awesome. Um, yeah. And then I went to high school in Florida. So I had residency in the state of Florida. So I went back there for grad school. I got my Master's of Education at the University of Florida. And then I transferred to the Florida State University. Uh,
0: for speech. Okay, cool. All right. So you you go, you get your master's of education, and then you immediately determined that you wanted to go the SLP route. Um, and so what was that experience like when you were obtaining that um, master level degree? And what stands out to you in that part of your career journey?
1: Yeah, well, I had to go back and take an entire year of prerequisites. Because most speech pathologists come straight from a communication sciences and disorders undergrad. So that's what SLPs and audiologists do. It's the same major. And then the pipeline is straight into your AUD or your master's for speech. Um, Boston College did not have that program. I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know how you became an audiologist or a speech pathologist. So I had to spend a year after I got my MED doing full time Uh, pre I had to go back and get my speech acoustics and biology and all of these things that I hadn't gotten. So I spent a whole year doing that and nannying, and then I could start the actual six-semester SLP program. Okay. Um, so it was pretty eye-opening. Uh, I knew a lot about kids, but that wasn't enough. Um, SLPs have to know about the entire lifespan, and there's a lot more, um, scientific background.
0: Okay, all right, so, um... When you were in the midst of doing this program, how, like, did you determine that once I get the SLP, I'm going to do you know, a specific line of work, like you kind of already had it in your mind of what you wanted to do once you obtained that degree?
1: I did and I didn't. I knew I wanted to work with kids, but I was open to anything, and I actually enjoyed some of our adult rotations as well, but it did reinforce for me that pediatrics is really my lane. Um, I discovered two primary areas of interest in grad school that weren't necessarily what I was expecting. One was working with children with multiple and severe disabilities. Uh, I was fortunate to have an opportunity to be in graduate school on a grant with Dr. Carla Wood, where I had a lot of opportunities to get additional experience working with children with multiple and severe disabilities and their families using alternative communication modalities and so forth. And then I had a rotation with Janet Kahn, who is an incredible auditory-verbal therapist. And that's where I fell in love working with children with hearing loss. I watched her in our first sessions before I took over the kids. And I saw how she was blending audiology and science and data and the art of teaching all into these auditory-verbal therapy sessions. And I thought, I feel like I'm at home. Mm. This is what I want to do. I had never worked with a child with hearing loss before, but I loved it. So I fell in love with both of those two disciplines. I had a very hard time deciding which route I wanted to go. Turns out I didn't totally have to decide because 40% of children with hearing loss have additional disabilities. So I still get to blend the two. But Janet Kahn really encouraged me to apply for my final externship at Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech in Jacksonville. Which I did. So my last semester of grad school, I was there full-time and I learned so much from the incredible leaders there and it really solidified for me that I wanted to dedicate my professional career to children who are deaf and hard of hearing in their families.
0: Okay, that's very cool. So let's talk about Clark, Um, you know, because I think this is really an interesting program and school system um, can you just give a background on, on kind of the history of Clark and then, like, its current state?
1: Absolutely. Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech has been around for over 150 years. We're one of the first uh, organizations to teach children who are deaf and hard of hearing to listen and speak in our country. Um, and Clark started off with primarily residential program, as most schools for the deaf did in that era. Um, but we have come a long way. We no longer have a residential program at all. We have five locations up and down the East Coast, and we teach children who are deaf and hard of hearing to listen and speak at our five locations, in mainstream schools and settings, in the child's natural environment, such as families' homes, and virtually. And we really focus on empowering children and parents to use technology such as hearing aids or cochlear implants to learn to listen, speak, read, and achieve alongside their hearing peers in the mainstream setting. And our goal is to get them to the mainstream setting with their hearing peers as early as possible.
0: And so what's the earliest demographic or or age group that would be part of Clark? Is it all the way down to preschool?
1: It is way before preschool. We sometimes get them at two weeks of age. And that is what I love to see. I love to see a referral straight from the AVR. Um, But we serve babies as soon as they are diagnosed with a hearing loss, all the way through when they go off to college.
0: Okay, cool. And the idea is that, you know, you're basically helping... um, Because like you said, like, kind of along that age spectrum, you obviously have different uh, stakeholders, I guess, if you will, right? So when you're a little tiny child, you obviously, you need somebody that's like a guardian or a parent, right? And so your audience is probably a little different to then as they age and they become a little bit more independent and autonomous, then they become the stakeholder and the, the person that you're, I guess, working closely with. So can you speak a little bit about that, about like, what what's that like working with this whole age spectrum and, and all the different kind of like stakeholders along the way?
1: Absolutely, and I'll speak a little bit about Clark's in-person services to give you an idea of it, and then I'll focus a little more on teleservices, which is my department and my area of expertise. Although I will say I were I was um, at Clark, New York for seven years prior to assuming this role. So I was on one of the campuses. It's an early intervention and preschool program as a speech pathologist and then as the assistant program director um, for seven wonderful years in Manhattan before I became fully remote and kind of expanded to all Clark and um, all teleservices. So our on-site or in-person services, because they're not all on-site. A lot of them are in the schools. They range a lot. So we have in-person and virtual early intervention, or EI, for those birth to three-year-olds. Everywhere at Clark, that's going to focus on a parent coaching model. We And I'm going to use the terms parents and caregivers interchangeably, because so it's anyone who is important in the child's life. That could be a nanny or a grandparent, anyone. Um, And then Clark does have preschool programs, as well as providing mainstream supports to preschoolers who don't need to be in a dedicated Clark program, where the kids are in a classroom with a teacher of the deaf and getting speech every day. Some of the Clark campuses have some early elementary grades as well, whereas others do not. And then we provide support in the mainstream schools as children get older. So there is really a shift that happens. In terms of teleservices, we also see that shift. The difference, there's a few differences, one being that you don't have to live near a Clark campus. With children who are deaf and hearing, we have something we call the zip code lottery in our field, and it's a huge issue. Wherever that child happens to be born used to determine what services they got. If there was a teacher of the deaf or an SLP in their area, they might do really well and have great opportunities. And if there was not, they were out of luck. Um, And that led to huge disparities in outcomes. And still does. But in terms of Clark's T-Visit teleservices, those are available to children anywhere. And we provide them to families who live around the corner from a Clark campus, families who live a plane ride away from a Clark campus, and even international families. So we provide those services to a child or family anywhere, but it follows a similar progression in that for birth to three, roughly, early intervention, we're really doing parent coaching. The child is typically present, although they may fall asleep. You know, if they're two months old, they might fall asleep. If they're two <laughs> years old, they might have a temper tantrum um, and not be able to participate in the session. And that's not a problem whatsoever, because we believe that even, say I'm doing a session, I could be the best SLP, AVT in the entire world if if I were magic, right? Mm -hmm. And I still can't change a child's life in 30 or 60 minutes a week. Mm -hmm. It's not enough time. So we are working on coaching the parents and caregivers to know all the strategies, all the education, all the understanding of their child's hearing loss that they need to provide that intervention across all their daily activities. The child's getting listening and language support all day, every day from their first and most important teachers, their parents. Mm -hmm. As the children enter preschool, when they're doing T visits, they're still going to need support. You cannot put a three-year-old in front of a computer, walk out of the room and think it's going to go great. It's not. (laughs) It's not going to go great. Um, And here's where we really see T visits get even more customized. Because we provide the type of on-site support that every individual child needs. So in the preschool years, typically there is a teacher, if they're in a preschool, or a parent still present, still helping the child participate, and we're still doing a lot of coaching. The child will more and more directly participate with the interventionist, whereas my infants and toddlers, I don't even want them looking at me. It's not appropriate developmentally for them to be staring at a screen for half an hour. So I'm talking to their parent, and their parent is interacting with them. I'm going to start interacting more with the child when they're in that preschool age group.
0: This makes sense. Okay. So just to kind of like yeah. stick on this before we kind of yeah. keep going up the age ladder. So when you are meeting with parents that are, this is really new to them, right? Maybe there's not like any, um, you know, kind of like family history of hearing loss or something like that. Um, what what are those conversations like? And, and what are some of those strategies that you're all usually communicating um, like, just kind of walk me through what these sessions look like when we're talking about um, the parents or the guardians of young children. Great question.
1: For those young children, whether they're babies or toddlers with a bit of a later diagnosis or, you know, kids that are a little bit older, but their parents did not have access to early intervention for whatever reason. So it's new to the parents, Right. We spend a lot of time doing parent education where we really talk to the parent about what have they learned from wherever they've been, either from earlier intervention or from their audiologist and what is still confusing or has never been taught to them or perhaps they simply can't remember. And we teach our parents really the nuts and bolts. I want them to learn what is normal hearing, typical hearing, what type of hearing loss does their child have, where along the anatomy and all that, where does that occur? Where's the breakdown in typical hearing? And therefore, why are we using this specific technology that your child has? You know, maybe they're using a bone anchored hearing aid. Why are we using a bone anchored hearing aid for your child? If they don't know the difference between a conductive and sensory neural hearing loss, I need to start there, right? So we do a lot of education on the mechanics of hearing loss, troubleshooting and using your devices, Why is it important to wear devices all waking hours? What are strategies for helping keep devices on young, squirmy children? Big one. (laughs) That's a big Uh, one. (laughs) It's a huge one. It's a huge one. We spent a lot, yeah, a lot of time talking about
0: period retention. Mm -hmm. Um, Little critter slips and all the like little fun ways that they like to, you know, deck out their devices that are cute and fun.
1: Yeah, and they can be really cute and fun. And it doesn't have to be this miserable battle, but that's often what it is when mm-hmm. we, you know, we meet a family, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe even their audiologist gave them some awesome retention devices, but they didn't fully understand or the baby was having a meltdown at the time, so they weren't 100% hearing the audiologist. So they often will pull out a bag with a ton of great stuff and have no idea how they're supposed to be
0: using it. Totally. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So those are the kinds of things that you're going through. Um, This just popped in my head. I I mentioned I haven't had an SLP on, but the closest I think I've had is Michelle Hu, Mama Who Hears. Are you familiar with Mama Who Hears? I am a little bit familiar. Okay, so she has a really great program that's called My Child Has Hearing Loss, Now What? And it's basically dedicated for the same thing. That was something that came to mind here. But I do think it's like really important that... There are services that are specifically addressing this for, you know, the parents and the guardians here that, because um, like you said, like, it, they're the number one teacher and they're, I think, the ones that are going to help to, um, you know, kind of like make make this something that's so habituated and, and uh, a part of their life that, you know, I think that there's so many benefits that can come from all of this early intervention um, so it's exciting to see more services geared toward, like, the parents and the guardians, I think, is, is super important.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's critical. And we want children and adults with hearing loss to be self-advocates. That starts with parents. That starts with the parents understanding hearing loss in order to advocate and knowing knowing how to advocate, and then the children seeing that their whole lives, it's just part of their life, and they will then slowly taken over
0: themselves. Totally. Okay, so moving up into the age spectrum, so then you're dealing with, um, you know, what does this start to look like with when the child themself um, is the stakeholder or is the yeah. one that you are working directly with? How does this evolve? And like you said, it starts to become more customized. Um, and I definitely want to get more into the the T-visits part because I do think yeah. that this is a critical thing. You know, it's like we talk a lot about like telehealth and. um like you said, the zip code lottery, um, which is, I think, we can all relate to, but think of, like, how much more devastating that would be if you're a child, right? And you are, you're really set up to fail if you're not, like, having those kinds of of tools and accessories to set you up in a way that you can sort of, um, I don't know, I, I just think it's, like, even more important and paramount for our younger populations.
1: Yes, and because of the frequency and intensity they need. You know, it's a huge problem that most children and adults with hearing loss don't live close enough to an audiologist, a hearing aid dispenser, all those things. But it's more realistic that people will make a trip every few months annually to go to an audiology center, to upgrade their devices. But it's not realistic at all that people might drive two, three, seven, ten hours, two or three times a week for um, therapy and educational services. It's, it's literally impossible. So I agree for our pediatric population, T visits are so important because audiology for them, it's not enough. You know, we can give a family a device and that is incredible. Audiology is one of the most important aspects of my field, collaborating with audiologists, them programming optimally for the child, getting the right device in the parent's hands. All of that is step one, but then we need the ongoing intervention for the family to understand how to use it, for the child to make the best progress they can. So yes, as the children get older, we see the handoff from the primary stakeholder being the parent and or teaching team, depending on if we're primarily in the school or at the home, to the child being the primary stakeholder, although we're still very much involving parents and educational teams. Um, somewhere in elementary school, and that is extremely variable based on the child's needs. Some kids are like up and running when they're in early elementary, and some kids are not ready to be independent in a session until middle school, Um, and we do whatever works for the child. That's fine. So they may have an aide present with them, even if they're a little older, to help them with technology if that's hard for them, to help them stay on task if that's hard for them. Um, But typically, by the end of elementary, they're pretty independent, and our middle and high schoolers are typically working one-on-one or in small groups with a speech therapist or a teacher of the deaf who's providing those support services so they can succeed alongside their hearing peers. Throughout that time, we are always collaborating with families and teaching teams because it's the same thing. Still, that finite period, they're with an amazing teacher of the deaf, but if they're teaching team who they're with all day doesn't know why do we use an FM system and we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So we use tools like consultations where you might only be meeting with the teaching team or with the parents. We send very detailed follow-up emails after sessions with the take-home points. Uh, We do in-services virtually for schools. And we also work very closely at every age with the child. We'll, We'll call it their medical home or their home audiologist. So we're always collaborating extremely closely with audiologists.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, because like, you know, so we've all, we've talked about like how you work closely with parents, guardians, the children themselves. And then the other, I think, two big parts of this are audiologists, so like your uh, fellow medical professionals, and then the teachers in the schools. Um, yes. So you mentioned like an FM system, you know, let's talk about what what's Clark's role and, and how does it work where... You know, you've identified a student who, through a T visit, you know they're in. They they didn't win the zip code lottery, right? And they yeah. just so happen to go <clears throat> to a public school that isn't well equipped for to accommodate for them. What does this look like for you all? Are you serving that role to help to kind of like facilitate the actual implementation and the procurement of the devices, or is it more of like? guidance on, you know, here are the ways in which you would go about getting the kinds of items that you need to accommodate these types of children?
1: Both. Okay. Absolutely both. <laughs> so it depends on the on the district and the school. Um, you know, we we're providing a lot of our services virtually um, due to the critical shortage of teachers of the de- deaf nationwide. Many children, even if there is a teacher of the deaf in their area, can't be served because most TODs spend more than half of their day in the car. Yeah. Huge problem. Yep. Right. That's 50% fewer children that mm-hmm. they're serving. So we're trying to provide more and more services virtually so that more children can have access to services. Um, it's not a good use of our most precious resources of teaching time, right? So some school districts are really well set up and we consult with the teams and everything's ready to go. A lot of school districts, this is their first time working with a child who's deaf or hard of hearing or their first time with a kid with a cochlear implant or they had one 15 years ago. Uh, What are we saying they need to use now? This sounds very different, you know. And so we consult with whoever we need to because it's not set up the same way in every state, in every district, it's very variable. So we are saying right off the bat, we're talking in the teaching team and saying, who is the team? Do we need to talk to a special education coordinator? Is there an educational audiologist? Or do we need to talk to a coordinator to contract with one? Because we need an educational audiologist to dispense any kind of HAT system, right? Um, So we're figuring out who's there and who can we coordinate with, and then we're also helping the parents know how to advocate within those IEP meetings and to know what they're asking. for.
0: Yeah, that was what I was going to ask is, you know, who does the onus ultimately fall on in terms of who's advocating for said school district to basically buy the equipment needed to accommodate for that child? Um, it seems like Clark would be obvi- an obvious, um, you know, candidate for that, but it, again, you're probably somewhat limited in, in the amount of resources and stuff that you have, so, you know, it's almost like the, uh, the parable of, like, you can teach a man to fish, uh, or you can cook a fish for him, so it's, it's like, you know, by helping to give and empower the parents and the guardians, then they're able to go and, and really feel confident in what they're asking for and in the specific requirements for their children more or less exactly
1: my goal my eye even when i have a two-week-old baby is on teaching those parents to fish i want them to go to their first iep meeting knowing exactly what they want to say because they know exactly what their child needs and what their child is legally entitled to um so that's our goal with the parents is for them to be fully ready To be those advocates now we often do participate in meetings and communicate with districts and so forth it just depends on the situation it goes back to that customization um every local educational agency lea everyone is a little different and every kid is a little different in what they need so we take a holistic view we talk to all stakeholders
0: and we figure out how do we need to support this child yeah that makes a lot of sense um okay so I think the the t visits is really interesting to me as somebody that I I'm I'm interested in like telehealth as a whole, and I think that the pandemic sort of really put this on full display of like, you know how how badly needed these kinds of services are. But it's interesting because like it sounds like you've all been doing telehealth before telehealth was in vogue, and yes. So <laughs> can you talk about like what just you know, kind of broadly speaking, like, what have you all learned about, you know, over the course of time about telehealth in general? Like, what are some of the things and the challenges that maybe you've overcome over time and, and, um, or even some of the ones that exist today that you're, you're trying to, to overcome? Like, what has, um, what has this process been like of, of, of a, you know, group that has been heavily involved with telehealth for a long time and, leading into the pandemic, I'm sure it probably was somewhat validating that you're like, well, we've already squared a lot of the heavy lifting, um, you know, already prior to the pandemic, and now we can kind of like use all that we've learned for it. So what's that part of this been like for you? Absolutely.
1: Um, Never have I felt more fortunate to be a trailblazer in the field (laughs) in 2020. (laughs) Um, Clark was fortunate to receive a large and long-term grant that was renewed several times um, in 2011. And the purpose of that grant was that a foundation really wanted us to explore and investigate, along with some other schools, um, how can we do teleservices for children who are birth to three with hearing loss, and what are the outcomes? So they wanted us to start doing teleservices with that early intervention population. And there was funding for an external evaluator to help us um, look at actual child and family outcomes. So we started that in 2011, and we trained providers to the best of our ability, which is to say, not much, right? Because there was nothing out there about how to do early intervention for children who are deaf and hard of hearing in 2011, which is why we got the grant. So we started out, Small. We started with uh, Clark staff who were comfortable with technology and also very experienced working with birth to three. Both of those things. And we started out doing hybrid services. So they were kids who came to Clark who already received services. And I did some of the very first T visits back in 2011. And I started them with my kids who I saw for speech in the clinic. So they came to Clark. I saw them twice a week, and then I would do once a week a chief visit with their family. Um, And I had no idea if it would work. I I was cautiously optimistic, but mostly terrified, to be honest. Um, But as we learned, and I wasn't very good at it at first, but I got better, we learned, we expanded a little bit and a little bit, and we started taking kids who could not come to Clark, right? They lived too far away. And that's when I thought, I don't know if this is gonna work, right? There's no way they're gonna do as well as my kids, who I see twice a week in person in my little speech room. Yeah. And I was very wrong. I was so blown away, and we all were, when the outcome started rolling in. And we saw our kids that lived, you know, I was seeing kids that lived six hours away in Western New York, never came to a Clark School in their life, we're hitting similar outcomes on norm reference speech and language tests, on auditory skills measures as our kids who came in person. And along this time, we were getting better. And we were learning what are the skills that you need that are different, right? Um, and that was a huge learning curve. I have to say, I thought I would have told you in 2010 that one of my strengths as a clinician was parent coaching. Mm-hmm. I would have listed that as, like, that's one of the things I'm better at. Mm-hmm. And then I started teleservices, and it was the most humbling experience of my life. Mm. Because when you cannot jump in and, quote, unquote, save a session, can't grab the screaming baby, can't wrestle their hearing aids back in for the parent, um, that's when you really learn to coach.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally.
1: And so we were developing protocols and procedures for training providers to fill that um, gap in skills, right? And we realized they really need to learn to become excellent parent coaches and also to learn um, some tech skills, right? Like how like how do you screen share? People didn't know that then. Now we're pretty good at it, but we certainly didn't know it then. But the biggest area that we needed to support was in learning about adult learning theory because we were truly coaching caregivers and teachers and um, coaching. So we were pretty well positioned when 2020 came. We were really good at doing this with the little ones. We switched all our early intervention to virtual, trained up any providers that hadn't been doing T-visits yet. We were able to train them in-house at all of our campuses. That went pretty smoothly. Um, we had to learn to adapt it to the older kids. We'd done some older kids, But not large scale and all of a sudden no one could come to preschool and no one could go to the mainstream schools but what we had going for us is that Clark is a relatively large organization so we had people like me who knew a lot about teleservices and not a lot about how to support high schoolers and then we had people like our mainstream coordinators who knew everything in the world about how to support a high schooler and nothing about how to do a session on Zoom. And we came together, came together in small groups, we knowledge shared, and we modified existing protocols. I looked at their procedures, they looked at my trainings, we figured out what worked for every different age group, and, um, we were able to pivot much more quickly than we would have otherwise.
0: Okay, so this is very interesting. So you, um, You know, when you talk about kind of like these preconceived notions that you had about this is what one of my strong suits is and then now I have to kind of pivot because, like, obviously, you're certain, there's certain limitations. What are, you know, kind of like where you sit now? Obviously, one of the biggest advantages is that you can sort of accommodate for really anyone in the country so long as they have, you know, an internet connection and the ability to interface with you. Um, but like what are what are some of the things that really stand out to you in terms of like, from where you began and where you are now, what are the things that resonate in terms of like what you've accomplished and in, in terms of the kinds of interactions that you have with people? I know you named a few there, but I guess just, you know, where where we are today is, I think it's like you said, like the technology's there, but I still think that people are learning, in their own time about how this all kind of works, and, and I'm sure there's things that were unforeseen of, like, challenges that you maybe not, would have not thought would be challenges, or things that you thought would have been major limitations that you realized aren't nearly as big of limitations than you had previously thought.
1: Yes. And the biggest thing that I thought would be a limitation that ended up not being was technology, even in 2011. Like, there's very little that can't be fixed with a tripod and like a few (laughs) easy things like that. It's come a long way, but it ended up being such a small barrier, right? What ended up being more challenging than we expected for me, I'll say personally, was walking the walk with coaching. Like I would have told you all about how all my SLPs were parent coaching and I was parent coaching, um, but learning how to really do it via teleservices, um, you realize what a control freak you are. (laughs) Because I can control my little speech room. I cannot control at all what's happening in a toddler's home. Um, But we we learned to adapt to those things, things that most people perceive to be challenges of telehealth, like siblings being present, I view as an advantage. Um, Because the siblings are actually in that child's life every day. So Mm -hmm. if we see them as a problem to be overcome and to be given an activity to be kept quiet during a session... That's not real life for that kid. We need to bring those siblings in because they might be some of the best models and best teachers for that child. They need to be part of the process. So I try to take everything that we have encountered as a quote unquote challenge and turn it into an advantage for that family. So things like siblings quote unquote ruining the session. No, they don't. Siblings are active participants in the session. It's reframing it, a problem that I encountered when I first started was children having meltdowns or falling asleep. Not a problem. That's a great time to parent coach. That's a great time to do some extra education. And it's also an amazing time to coach parents in behavior management strategies. So all of these things that we perceive to be challenges, we have been able to turn into advantages, but you have to have a certain attitude of flexibility that doesn't come easily to all of us myself included um slps joke around that we're rigid type a people and we are <laughs> so this is this is a great learning experience for us yeah. um we also really learned over time of critical importance is setting expectations of all participants before we bring in the kids so we didn't do that at the beginning we just you know jumped on in now, before we start tea visits, I always do a consultation session with whoever's going to be present, the parents or the, whatever adult is going to be there without the child present at all, to really explain without the distraction of the child, what is parent coaching? What is your role going to be and what is my role going to be? And where are we going to do the session? Let's look around the house. Oh, there's a really loud window unit right there. Can we look at another room and show me what's in your house? What do you like to play with? Um, so that I'm ready to coach them effectively and they are ready to be the actual interventionist. Without setting those expectations, that's how a session can fall apart very quickly, because you have a parent staring at you expectantly, pointing the screen at their baby and saying, go for it. And that's, that's not how it works. So setting the expectations before we bring in the kids um, is one of the most important lessons we
0: I I really like, too, that point about kind of, like, the the, uh, in-situ sort of, like, real-world examples of, like, what their actual environments are like. I had an audiologist tell me one time that he really liked the in-person visits that he did because he's like, you know, I can, like, see the dogs that he has. And, and like, I can basically tune their hearing aids and program them specifically for the acoustic environment they spend the most time in. And it's almost kind of like, you know, you... If not for that, then when they come into the clinic, they're having to sort of like secondhand try to relay their actual ambient environment to you. And it's like a game of telephone, right? And so it's like when you actually get to be there, whether you're in person or virtually, I think there's a lot to be said about that, which is this is the going to be the predominant place, um, you know, outside of maybe school, that they're going to be spending a lot of their time. So why not? tailor it to those settings
1: exactly and that audiologist has what a lot of audiologists wish they had which is the opportunity to do home visits right most don't and that's where i love partnering with them because i can say because a parent has a lot of jobs in the day and it's very hard to discern they know the kid is taking the hearing aids off all the time feels like all the time and it's impossible for them to figure out when. And then I'm coming in and I'm saying, oh, they always throw them off when the bus comes, the siblings come home. And then I can point that out to the parent, and I'm also emailing the audiologist. I think we might need to change some settings. When the siblings are home, they they are always taking their hearing aids out. When the environment is quiet, they tolerate them no problem. P.S. This family has seven dogs, three of whom have very high-pitched, loud barks, you know? Um, and Shewallis. I do tell, aud- <laughs> yes, and I do tell audiologists things like that because it doesn't even, when it's just your life, it's just your everyday life, it doesn't occur to you to tell your doctor or your audiologist that, right? So, of course, the parent's not going to think to talk about the dog because the dog is just in their family. But really? I noticed it immediately and I can tell the audiologist to help inform that. So, it helps fill a gap of, I wish we could all go right into the child's home, but we can't. So, since I'm there virtually, I'm going to share that information with the team.
0: Okay, which brings me to uh, another, I think, really important part of this conversation, which is kind of a call to arms of how there seems to be a lot of opportunity here for collaboration between you, your team, and just kind of like this role that you play in the audiologist. And I think that this could be a call to arms a bit of like, you know, how how do we increase that collaboration? Because just something that I've noticed anecdotally is that and I think I mentioned this, um, like we were doing prep, was that it's almost like there's a um, there's like a cohort of audiologists that are really focused on sort of like, it, first it was the newborn screenings. And now that's been mandated writ large for the most part. You know, it's like that's mission accomplished. And it's like now it's kind of like early intervention is a huge theme and a huge focus. And I think that, you know, we could get a lot of the a lot of people rowing in the same direction um what 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 are your thoughts on how you know we could kind of increase the collaboration between these two worlds of audiology and SLP for the sake of of the children
1: absolutely great question and i'll i'll give you a two part answer i'll first kind of tell you how it works when it's working really well and then what i what i think our call to action is really. okay So we have, you know, some individual audiologists we work with well, but we have some larger audiology centers where we get a lot of referrals from them because they happen to have a lot of kids that travel to them and so forth. And we've worked with them for a long time, so we have a great relationship with them. With those centers, what it looks like is we are all gaining this collaboration. So they might refer a child to me they'll send the, their reports, whatever they have, the ABR right over. I'm meeting with the parent when the baby is just a few weeks old. Um, and they're, you know, so we're, we are collaborating from the get go. Now it's a two way street. The audiologists, I will often get an email from an audiologist or an ed- educational liaison at a cochlear implant center saying, Hey, so-and-so came in for testing and they fatigued, we could only get, you know, X frequency in the sound field, and we're, you know, audiologists are working on really limited time in hard conditions with kids. Pediatric audiology is no joke. Nope. And it is impossible to get all the information you need in one appointment with a young child. Literally impossible. (laughs) So they may tell me before or after the session, like, we only got this, what are your thoughts, or, can you in your sessions please try to do um, link checks or LMH checks with the cochlear implants isolated because we could only get to sound field and we really can't tell, you know, uh, we have some concerns about the left side, but we're not sure. Or, and or, I'm always sending an email if I know that child has an appointment, I'm sending an email to the audiologist ahead of time. Here's what we've been working on. Uh, You know, John Smith, Always consistently detects, a uh, u e at a distance of up to six feet, normal speaking volume. Even at one foot, he's not showing consistent detection responses to, I'm worried about the highs. Um, then the audiologist knows to start there because they have a short window before the child's going to totally lose it and not <clears throat> be test it anymore. So they know, okay, let me start on the highs because we might need some tweaking there something like that um and then we go back and forth i work on they say you know i want to make the switch from vra to play audiometry i will teach the parents how to play listen and drop play audiometry games in our sessions we practice it they go in for audiology and they are like little booth pros right (laughs) so um the parents are less frustrated the audiologists are getting better information I'm getting better information, and the child, most importantly, is hearing much better because they can be programmed optimally. So that's what a great collaboration can and does look like. We do a lot of this. The call to action is that, for all of us, really, we have a major goal at Clark of doing more outreach to pediatric audiologists and specifically diagnostic audiology centers. Because as you were saying, there's these multiple places where a child can fall through the cracks. We're doing pretty much really well with newborn hearing screening, and they usually make it to an ABR from there. Sometimes it takes way longer than we want, but for a child to have a diagnosed hearing loss, they do in fact have to interface at some point with a diagnosing audiologist. That that happens at least once. Mm-hmm. So Clark needs to reach out to all of those audiologists. Because what can happen from there is there can be a mix-up with the referral to EI or it might never happen, or there might not be any therapists with knowledge in the area where the family might not follow up and come back to the audiologist. They might miss a pediatrician appointment. There's all these places where intervention should occur, but might not. So our call to action is to Get the word out about our services to more of those pediatric audiologists. And then the call to action for the audiologists is to refer for teleservices, to think outside the box. Because um, for so long, we saw kids in a clinic and audiologists referred them to appropriate services when and if they were available. But they usually weren't, or they sometimes weren't. And when they weren't, they said, you know, here's some resources do the best you can, we'll see you for speech when you come for audiology, and it was the best they could do. Um, But now we can do so much better as a field. So helping parents see that teleservices might not be what you were envisioning doing with your baby, but here's really how they could help your entire family and making those referrals. So everyone in the field has to step up for all families to benefit.
0: Yeah, I think it's, the thing that's kind of exciting about this is it really does feel like, uh, these children, like, the what what I think is sort of manifesting is, like, a team, um, around them, you know? So you have the SLP, and I think that, like, Clark is so cool with what you're doing where you're coordinating so much of this, is to say, like, okay, you know, we've identified a child that needs our services, our collective services as a whole, whether that's educating the parents, or it's looping in the school to say, here are the kinds of accommodations this child is going to need, and then on the, you know, kind of in tandem, helping the parents become advocates, and then also roping in some of these allied medical professionals to say, you know, for the audiologist, I just think, like, so much of this boils down to there's only so much resources and bandwidth and time and resources available, so it's like, how do you maximize that? And One way that you can do it is for there to be a lot of efficiency here, and I think, like, these T visits are such a great way to gather a lot of information, communicate a lot of information, so that, you know, it then means that the audiologist only needs to spend a small portion of what would have been a lot of the same sort of redundant probing questions and stuff like that. You've already sort of gotten to this is the thrust of the main things that this child needs. And for me, it's like everything that you're saying today is just, I think, one big reinforcement of, like, the name of the game is efficiency and taking this and making it available to as many people as possible, which I think is really welcome. I think we need a lot of that. I think it's a team effort.
1: I couldn't say it better myself. Um, It really is a team effort. And I think that... 99.9% 99.9% of people in our entire field went into this field with the best of intentions because they mm-hmm. care so much about providing optimal quality care in whatever area of the field they're doing. And then you're right, the realities of every day hit, and you have you only have so much time, and you only have so many resources, and you don't know who their audiologist is, or the audiologist doesn't know any SLPs who know what they're doing. And and the reality comes in, and kids don't get optimal services. But I truly believe that all the professionals I've ever interacted with to this point in my career have wanted the best for the p- patients they serve. And so this is an opportunity for us to actually do what we say we want to do. By working together, we can achieve those outcomes for kids and families.
0: I love it. So as we come to the close here, you know, for any audiologists that might be listening, um, or just folks that want to learn more and and become uh, more familiarized with how they could work more closely with you and your team, how should they connect with you?
1: Absolutely. Anyone can reach out to us, audiologists, school district, parents, concerned uh, grandparents. Anyone (laughs) can reach out to me. Um, I encourage anyone to go to ClarkSchools.org slash T-Visit. That has a lot of information. Video testimonials, information about our services. There are direct links there. Anywhere it says contact me, it will pop up and an email will come straight to me. Um, And I will see it um, and I will respond to you and or redirect you to the appropriate person in Clark because it may be that, oh, you're inquiring about somewhere. We have an in-person mainstream program. Perfect. Let me connect you with that person in Philadelphia. Um, Or I may say, let's schedule a call so we can talk more any inquiries you have, ClarkSchools.org slash t contact us, you will get to me. Um, it is my job to figure out how to make it work. <laughs> so I will work with you and figure out what our options are. And there's a lot there to see if people are interested in more. My colleague, Katie Jennings and I presented a free webinar that was directed for families in May. It is also posted on Clark's website and goes into teleservices across the age span with a lot of video examples. And anyone can view it if they're wanting to learn more. It's great for parents. Um, it's also great for professionals who want to see how does this work before I'm suggesting to my patients that they do it. Um, so we can include that link for your
0: show notes. Fantastic. Yes, I will definitely include those in the show notes. Now, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a uh, a really interesting conversation and it gives me a lot of hope because I do kind of think that, um, you know, this is a, a huge opportunity. You know, you you think about like Audiology is such a small fragment of, you know, like it's it's dwarfed by how big the SLP community is. And so I think that it's exciting to think about how the two professions that really are kind of, you know, one big body, um, you know, it's like it's like Asha. Um, how do how do these how do these roles and and uh like how does it all kind of come together? And I think this is a great example. A uh, very noble cause of like, you know, doing it on behalf of, of our, of the kids. Um, yep. cause I think there's some really powerful ways to collaborate. And I think that will just do a lot of good to, to kind of like fortify and unify the, the two professions that are kind of within the same family and the same umbrella.
1: I agree. I, there's so much I love about my job, but coaching and working with families and then collaborating with my professional colleagues, be that audiologists, surgeons, ENTs. These are some of my absolute favorite things I do. And if we all work together and really lean in to family-centered services, we can break down every barrier that has prevented children with hearing loss from reaching their maximum potential. We have the tools now to do that. There is no limit, there are no limits for children who are deaf and hard of hearing. And through
0: teleservices and collaboration, we can help families realize that goal. I love it. And on that note, I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.